This morning as we begin every week, I have the privilege of ascending to this pulpit and bringing to you God's word, and it's something that I am very grateful for. This morning, I want to continue in Colossians, and I want to place before you a continuation of Paul's prayer that we've been studying. That prayer that for being able to please God. And specifically this morning, I want to put your attention on the magnificence of God's saving work. It's my hope that in reading these words, pondering these truths, that we will be overwhelmed by the work of God. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. For a message I have titled, The Prayer to Please God. God's work for us. While praying for the Colossians to live a life that indeed is pleasing to God, beginning in verse 9 and 10, Paul explains then what it means to please God, which is what we talked about last week, which we saw in the following verses, the second half of verse 10 through verse 11. His prayer includes an explanation that pleasing God is not the result of our work for God, but the result of God's work in us. These include bearing fruit, growing in the knowledge of him, and being strengthened. They're not born from their work, from our work, or from our labors. They're the product of allowing God to work in us. And then as the text continues into our text today, we see this transition. A transition that goes from the explanation of God's work in people to an explanation of God's work for people. So please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You may be seated. G.K. Chesterton writes or shares, When it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or take them with gratitude. Close quote. The difference between taking things for granted or taking them with gratitude is the difference between simply surviving life or supremely enjoying life. The one who thinks, takes things for granted will find himself aggravated by circumstances that are not what he had planned or not what he desired. Such a person is notable for their constant complaining and their continual criticism while appeased for a brief time. A few moments later, and their demeanor will return to that same form. The same person finds only temporary gratification rather than ongoing satisfaction. But on the contrary, 
The person who takes things with gratitude is the one who always conveys joy regardless of the situation. Such a person is not necessarily the one who is always happy or always recognizable by a constant smile on their face. It's not the person simply living by the power of positive thinking. But instead, the person of gratitude is the person you would likely go to for help because by combining truth and compassion, they're able to convey a reliable picture of reality. A person of gratitude is permanently content because he or she is convicted not only by the purposes of God, but indeed they are purposed by God, taking things for granted or taking them with gratitude, as Chesterton calls it, is not a matter of disposition only. It is a matter of position. A thankful person is appreciative because he or she will see the value of people. By placing ourselves under people, under others, with a position of humility, we develop a heart of thanksgiving. We're thankful when others give us gifts because we are determined that they are far more deserving than we are. We are thankful when they are used by God, when they keep us accountable. And we are thankful for when they sharpen us as iron sharpens iron. And a thankful person is also appreciative because he or she sees the value of God. By placing ourselves under God, we acknowledge who he is and who we are not. It calls us to not only acknowledge our unworthiness, but it transforms our perspective so that whatever we receive from him, whether trial or tribulation, whether gift or gratification, it is all seen as a manifestation of God's grace in our lives for which we respond with thanksgiving. To be unappreciative is not merely to lack appreciation, Instead, it is to empty God's work of his kindness and exhaust him of his grace by presuming upon his gracious work. That principle is, is exemplified most by the underappreciation of the gospel, evidenced by the fact that God's gift of salvation, which really should inspire an attitude of gratitude, is frequently abandoned frequently appropriated, and frequently abused. Nothing is more underappreciated than God's rescue of sinners. It is frequently abandoned. Despite being the good news that so many people seek in a world of bad news, the authority of it is forgotten. Its effect is neglected, and the message is rejected. Appallingly, the same truth is frequently appropriated. It's used by many movements and agendas and arguments simply to further one's own self and what one wants, which then leads to its frequent abuse. Not only is it abused for personal gain, but this gift of God is taken for granted, made light of by our lack of allegiance and our unwillingness, or our willingness rather, to participate unrestrained in the world. But the potency of the gospel demands a potent response to the gospel. That response begins with an attitude of thanksgiving, an attitude of thanksgiving towards God. 
while maintaining his position of prayer in our text, Paul explains exactly what God does for his people. He does not weaken the gospel by making it more pleasant. It's already pleasant on its own merit. Neither does he adorn the gospel with words of eloquence. The gospel is already eloquent by its own work. Instead, Paul presents the greatness of the gospel by presenting the greatness of God's work. I want you to note first the inheritance found in verse 12. The inheritance. The word of God reads, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The promise of salvation from God has always included the provision of an inheritance from God. To the Bible reader, the phrase, share in the inheritance, should be an ear-perking phrase that prompts readers and prompts us to remember God's Old Testament promises. Throughout the entire Old Testament, God's purposes are seen through the provision of an inheritance. We go all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, to God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. At that point, God says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And then as time passed from generation to generation, from one to the next, one would likely not blame God if you could for if he had forgotten his promise. Because it took roughly 600 years later for him to then talk to Moses and reaffirm this promise. And he reaffirms it once again in Exodus chapter 6, what we read this morning in our scripture reading. Verse 8 says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Even after these words are spoken, the wait is still long. So long, in fact, that even Moses will never get to see this land promised by God. From this conversation, or from this time of this conversation with God, multiple events will take place before he fulfills his promise. At the instruction of God, shortly thereafter, Moses will confront Pharaoh on behalf of Israel. And then God will bring judgment down on the kingdom of Egypt through the form of the ten plagues. And with the completion of the plagues, then Moses is permitted to lead the nation of Israel out, away from Egypt. But only after he is then pursued a short time later. At which point, God will of course part the Red Sea, allowing the nation of Israel to cross. But then he will regather that sea so that the nation of Egypt will perish, or at least those pursuing Israel continue reading, we'll see God care for his people, only to have them rebel time and time again. They will wander the desert for 40 years, and only when that first generation has passed away and the new generation remains, will this nation of Israel finally see God fulfill his promise of an inheritance, his promise of a land that he made with Abraham so many years before. Long before entering the land, 
God commanded Eleazar to take a census of the people in Numbers 25, 26, sorry. And he tells them to count all the people by tribe. And in this fourth book of the Pentateuch, Numbers chapter 26, beginning in verse 51, it says this, this was the list of the people of Israel, 601,730. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Among these the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. But the land shall be divided by lot. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inherit. Their inheritance shall be divided according to the lot between the larger and the smaller. It's worth noting, just as a side note, that Paul's word for inheritance in verse 12 of Colossians 1 is the same word for casting lots that we see here. The numbers recorded here in the book of Numbers are the very ones that will be used to divide up the land, the very land that God is giving them. And once God bestows this gift to them, it is theirs. Belonging to the nation of Israel, it cannot be taken away. Notice that even while they are in exile, after they've been captured and carried away by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, this was still their land. It still belonged to them. And when they were released to return, where did they return to? To the land that God promised them. But what do the Colossians have to do with these generations that stretch from Abraham to Isaac through Jacob into Moses and even into Joshua? Why would Paul allude to such an inheritance now in his text? Because God's promise to Israel anticipates his promise of an inheritance not only to the Colossians, but to any of those who would submit their lives to the Lordship of his son, Jesus Christ. To them, they are promised the earth in Matthew 5.5. 5. Instead of apportioning merely a piece of land, though, God will apportion the entire earth as an inheritance, an entire earth for his sons to rule over. Revelation 26 says that they will rule over it jointly with Christ. Matthew 19.29 qualifies a believer's inheritance as eternal in nature, taking the form eventually of everlasting life. This is not a temporal gift like it was for Israel. This is not merely an earthly inheritance which will pass to the believer's descendants upon his or her death. This is a permanent possession. MacArthur writes of this, the knowledge of that, knowledge that we will inherit the restored earth should free us from the present pursuit of material possessions. Someday we will receive far more than we could ever gain in this life. Inheritances, though, are not merely granted to a person because he or she is there. A person doesn't receive an inheritance simply because that person's available or that person deserves it or that person earned it. Notice how the nation of Israel received their inheritance from God. They were not entitled to an inheritance because of their merit. They received it because God granted it. 
In the same way, one's inheritance is in the share of God's eternal kingdom. It's not the result of a person's work. It's the result of God's work. Consider how an inheritance is usually received. What does it take to receive an inheritance? Usually, it is the result of a person's relationship with that person. In more rare cases, an inheritance may not be because of a relationship, but simply because that person chose to give to that individual. In either case, the result is that it's not the person who did the work. It wasn't something good merely that the person did to earn that inheritance. Instead, it was completely reliant upon the one who is granting it. And that's exactly what we see here. Those who have an inheritance from God are permitted to receive it only because they are part of God's family. They are adopted as sons and daughters of his. How can that be, though? Because God qualified them, as our text says. He authorizes them to be part of his family. John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Only one other time is the word for qualified used in scripture. And it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. At a point when Paul is exclaiming that he has done nothing to make himself worthy yet to be an apostle. He's defending his apostleship by saying, but I didn't do it. It was by the work of God. And so in verse 5, he says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent or who has qualified us to be ministers of the new covenant. In the same way that God qualified Paul to be an apostle is the same way that God qualifies people for an inheritance. And in the same way that Paul had nothing to do with that qualification, we have nothing to do with qualifying ourselves for the inheritance. When I read this verse, I cannot help but think of the Broadway musical Annie. Annie, orphaned as a result of the death of her parents, spends most of her time enslaved in the care of really two awful human beings in an orphanage. Those, men, those people are in charge of the orphanage and thus in charge of her. And then she is surprised by the kindness of one rich gentleman who is known as Daddy Warbucks. And Daddy Warbucks chooses Annie to spend her Christmas with him. And his goal or his intention is to allow Annie to experience something that she's never experienced before and likely would never experience again. She will come to his large mansion. She will dine on his rich food. And she will be the recipient of his lavish gifts. And then at some point he decides he really wants to adopt her, to make her his own child. After many mishaps and several encounters, he finally does just that. And by that declaration, Annie is released from her slavery at the orphanage and becomes the heir for a billionaire businessman. This was not of her doing, but of his choosing. This daddy Warbucks made the search for her. She did not search for him. In the same way, he chose her for adoption. She only agreed to be adopted. 
This is a picture of our relationship with God. We see the relationship expressed in these words found in Galatians 3, 25 through 29. There Paul writes, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. By the work of Christ, God has released us from the slavery of sin. By the work of Christ, God has offered us adoption as his sons. And by the work of Christ, God has qualified us for an inheritance from him. Notice, though, that God's work is not complete at qualification alone. I want you to note, second, the deliverance found in the part of verse 13. The text reads, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. The promise of salvation from God includes the provision of deliverance by God. Once again, Paul's words here take us all the way back to the book of Exodus and all the way to the Exodus and the promises of God given to Moses and the promises given to the nation of Israel. Remember what we read in Exodus 6.6. God said to Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. To be delivered is to be rescued from danger by the work of God through the obedience of Moses. The people of Israel are completely liberated from the oppression and from the persecution of the Egyptians. Notice the transition that Paul makes in this verse, though. He no longer speaks just to the Colossians, but he says God delivered us. Now he includes himself in that work of God. And by doing so, he is noting that this work of God to rescue those, he's rescuing those who have called upon his name. He's rescuing everyone who's willing to come to Christ. Just as we read in John chapter 1. To be rescued implies a sense of danger. Much like the Israelites needed deliverance from the danger embodied by the Egyptians, believers too need rescuing from something. Something is explained here as the domain of darkness. This domain is the realm in which darkness has power, able to function and work for its own purposes. Jesus describes his own arrest this way, telling a chief priest, this is your hour and the power or domain of darkness. Darkness is characterized as a place where evil presides and chaos is prevalent. From Ephesians 6, 12, we can see that darkness is where the reign and rulers of authorities, the reign of the spiritual forces of evil. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 14 show us that darkness lies in deception. And we learn from 1 Thessalonians 5, that darkness is a realm of temptation. 
All that is in the darkness is all that is a contrary to God. Darkness isn't merely the absence of light. It is the absence of God's light. Darkness is deficient in God's love. Darkness is deprived of God's goodness. Darkness is destitute of God's kindness. Darkness is depleted of God's grace. God's deliverance rescues people from this darkness and instead brings them into the inheritance that is in the light. As we saw in verse 12, Paul describes this in Acts 26. Not only as a turning from darkness to light, but a turning from the power of Satan to the power of God. He expands this point further for all believers, saying in Ephesians 5, 8, at, what time, at one time you were darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. With this verse, Paul not only offers further declaration of God's rescue of sinners, but it is a clear connection between his prayer for the Colossians to walk worthy and fully pleasing to the Lord and bearing fruit. Ephesians 5.9, it says that the fruit of the light is found in all that is good. In Colossians 1.10, his prayer acknowledges that pleasing God is bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit is merely the consequence of deliverance. It shows that indeed God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, rescued us so that we are no longer coerced to the solicitations of Satan, and captivated instead by the good works of God. Fruit doesn't grow in darkness. I want you to note, finally, the transference found in the second half of verse 13 through 14. Text continues by saying, God transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The promise of salvation from God includes the provision of transference to the kingdom of God. In contrast to the domain of darkness that is just mentioned, consider the character of God's kingdom. Romans 14, 17 describes the kingdom of God in this way. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It is the complete opposite of the domain of darkness. It is the complete opposite of the kingdom from which everyone has just been delivered, or those that believers have been delivered at least. Instead of unrighteousness and chaos and sorrow, the kingdom of God is one of righteousness, peace, and joy. More than a privilege, being grafted into God's kingdom is a pleasure. But the pleasure is not ours alone. In the same way that receiving the kingdom and being delivered from the domain of darkness brings us enjoyment and satisfaction and contentment, our Lord also experiences enjoyment, satisfaction, and contentment, contentment at being able to give the kingdom. Having just told the disciples to seek God's kingdom, he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Notice how God finds pleasure at being able to give the kingdom, the inheritance 
to those he has qualified for sonship. Not only does the Lord give this kingdom willingly, but he never does it begrudgingly. Notice how the kingdom that Paul speaks of here is more precise, though, than just God's kingdom. In working through this text, it's important for you to pay attention to the phrasing of Colossians 1.13. Seeing what he says, transferring us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Paul doesn't merely write that God transfers us to his own kingdom, but rather he places believers under the kingship or headship <coughs> of Christ. We are citizens of Christ's reign, not just God's reign. The two, in many senses, are not as different as they may seem, but rather God's kingdom is Christ's kingdom. The verse calls Jesus Christ God's beloved son, or quite literally, that means the son of his love. Christ, as the son of God's love, takes us back to Mark chapter 1, to the baptism of Jesus. When coming out of the water, a voice is heard. And what does that verse, that, what does that word, that voice say? In verse 11, it says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This public declaration by God not only declares the sonship of Christ, but it authorizes Christ's inheritance. By these words, God is declaring that Christ is the rightful heir to God's kingdom. Therefore, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom that Christ inherits, is the kingdom of God, the kingdom from God the Father, and thus they are the same kingdom. And yet they are differentiated by their rule, by the roles of their rulers. 1 Corinthians 15:24 clarifies this. States, then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. As sovereign, God created the heavens and the earth. And he saw that it was good, created in perfection by a perfect God. It lacked nothing. Yet it was distorted by the sin of man. The role of Christ's rule is to restore the kingdom to its created order. By reconciling people to God, overcoming sin, and conquering God's enemies, Christ recovers the perfection that was lost. And so the culmination of Christ's work in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 is when he returns the restored kingdom back to the control of God. The work of Christ, though, is not merely global. It is personal. We are told that by Christ, we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. In verse 14, just as God redeemed Israel which is a continuation of Exodus 6.6, or what we read this morning in our call to worship in Psalm 106, verse 10, Christ now offers redemption as well. James Dunn writes, the most astonishing feature of this passage is the final phrase. It's the pardon for failure. It's the expunging of offense from memory and conscience. With that phrase, the magnificence of the gospel is personal because by Christ's payment 
for the penalty of sin, we are redeemed. By God's grace, believers are given forgiveness for sins in which all of their former trespasses are written off. But there seems to be a slight contradiction in these terms. Think about this. Redemption, or to be redeemed, means to pay a ransom. Much like when a ransom is paid in order to free a slave. That is the concept conveyed here. That there is a payment that takes place. But the word forgiveness indicates a free gift. Something that is given without requiring anything in return. So how can it be that salvation requires both a payment but is free? Because God chose to appease himself. Justice had to be done. A ransom had to be paid for the penalty of sin. But as the only one qualified to pay that ransom, our Lord Jesus Christ offers himself in an act of mercy. And thus it becomes a free gift. When we look at the cross and we see both God's justice and God's mercy, we see them combined. Justice at the satisfaction of God's wrath but mercy at the act of Christ's sacrifice. Thus, it is both a payment and a free gift. Incredibly, by this awesome act of God, we see how awesome God himself is. There's only one response to such an act, the giving of thanks to him for what he has provided. Paul's prayer is that the Colossians will know God and live a life fully pleasing to him, he explains that as bearing fruit, growing in the knowledge of him, and being strengthened or empowered by him. But the last aspect is pleasing God, of pleasing God is giving thanks to him. By this text, giving thanks is a genuine response to the act of salvation. And indeed, look at what he has done. Paul gives us three reasons for thanksgiving to God in the act of salvation. First, thanksgiving is a response to God's qualification of believers for an inheritance. Second, thanksgiving is a response to God's deliverance of believers from the domain of darkness. And finally, thanksgiving is a response to God's transference of believers in the, into the kingdom of his son. This work of God is a divine act Salvation was done as the result of God's volition, God's decision, not because of man's ambition. It was God who instituted it. It was God who initiated it. If salvation was not a divine act, man would have designed and instituted salvation by works. But God, knowing both our inability and our propensity for works, chose in his ability to write something different, to give a different way to impart salvation. This work of God is also a complete act. God did not carry people part of the way and then abandon them to their own initiative. What God has done, he has done wholly or completely, totally. And therefore, it is wholly, completely, totally sufficient. And finally, this work of God was costly. Some would accuse God of being prideful and vengeful. 
But this act of salvation was anything but prideful and vengeful. In fact, we could say it cost him that. God would have been within his own right as creator to seek justice and to seek retribution. But while God's wrath and justice were appeased for, for creation, it was muted. That does not minimize the cost of God through that initial sacrifice of his son. It cost him that. We should be left asking, who indeed is this son? Wouldn't you think that the significance of this would cause us to want to know him more? We will spend this next month, not just here at the church, but Christians and even unbelievers will spend this month anticipating or celebrating the birth of Christ. And it's because of his birth that commences the completion of God's promises in the Old Testament. And it marks the beginning of his son's work in the salvific plan. It seems then that we should know who he is. And that's exactly what we're going to do. In the meantime, let us not make light of God's work by devaluing the work of salvation. Let's instead take it with gratitude, appreciating the full effect of what God has done. Let's pray. Our Father God, <clears throat> we cannot help but read these words, these holy inspired words that came from you by Paul's hand, Lord, and, and not be overwhelmed by the work of your grace, by the work of your mercy, Lord. Father, this is indeed a wondrous and tremendous act. Father, may we not take it for granted. Father, may we live as though the gospel is real and relevant in our lives. And most importantly, in doing so, may that not just be mere obedience, but may that be our act of thanksgiving. May that be our act of spiritual sacrifice to you. Father, help us to, to walk closer to you, to know you more, to understand your will more with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And Father, may we, in seeing who you are, desire to want to know you more. May we desire to want to know your son more. And may we do that this month as we think and ponder and meditate upon the birth of your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. May it cause us to want to know who you are, to want to know who he is. And so, Father, we give you great praise for this wonderful act of salvation. Thanking you for not just who you are now, but what you have done for us. May we not take it for granted. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.